This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, Managing Editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. Do you know what true freedom is? One of the most powerful stories in all history is that of the Israelites, who were slaves in Egypt. They're being set free by God and given their own promised land. Many oppressed groups have used that story as inspiration for their own liberation or social change, including the American Revolution against Great Britain. When God brought Israel out, he instituted some observances. He wanted them to keep every year, and he commanded them never to forget bringing them out of Egypt. There are powerful lessons in this story that are very relevant to our lives, and we're going to talk about the most powerful on today's program. What is true freedom? The common belief today is that it means being able to do whatever you want to do without any consequences. That's a terribly false idea, a terribly destructive idea. That thinking leads many, many people into slavery. Take the example of drug addiction. Today in America, marijuana is being legalized more and more. More and more people are using it. And they view this as an exercise in freedom. But drugs have an addictive quality, and using them tends to lead to heavier use. They can actually alter your mind so you crave them. Some years ago on a PBS television special, one teenager who was addicted to drugs said this. All I thought about was drugs. I didn't think about nothing else. All I was doing was, like, if I wasn't smoking, I was looking for it. If I wasn't looking for it, I was talking about it. Another teen said this. I was addicted to drugs. I was very addicted to drugs. Your brain doesn't tell you my body's not functioning without drugs. It tells you you're sick. You need some medicine. That's what it's telling you. You need to medicate yourself. In order for you to feel better, you need to get that. So go get it. A doctor interviewed on this program explained this. If you are addicted, if you have this compulsion to use drugs, it's because your brain has literally been changed by drugs. Your brain has been hijacked. In an addiction, you are hurting yourself or you're hurting other people, probably both. But the drive to get that feeling overrides everything else. Even as your world is falling apart around you, you continue to go deeper into slavery. It's easy to recognize this with something like alcoholism or drug addiction. But the truth is that all sin has this addictive quality. In the Bible, God actually uses the example of Israel's slavery in Egypt to help us understand what sin does to us. Many people see sin as sexy, exciting, glamorous, or fun. God, on the other hand, sees sin as slavery. 
The Apostle Peter wrote about people whose idea of freedom was totally wrong. He wrote in 2 Peter 2 and verse 19, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. Sin is addictive, and addiction is a form of slavery. Maybe you have something in your life you want to stop. You wish you could stop, but you can't overcome it. Do you have something in your life you want to be rid of, something that you want to overcome that has actually overcome you? Maybe it's something that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it could be very serious. If you have that condition, you can understand what Peter means by saying, whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. And sometimes maybe it's a bigger deal than we're willing to admit to ourselves. Jeremiah 17 verse 1 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart. Now think seriously about what this verse means. Gerald Flurry, the trumpet's editor-in-chief, wrote this in his booklet, Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible. This is a dreadful warning talking about this verse, Jeremiah 17 and verse 1. Sin becomes deeply etched in our minds as if it were written there with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond. It becomes engraved upon our hearts. It's like being hooked on heroin. A sin often brings immediate pleasure. The person who first tries heroin feels nice for a while. Even things like stealing or wrong use of sex hatred, violence. These can feel good for a while. They can make a person feel free. And people do these things thinking they are very free. But that feeling doesn't last. And pretty soon you find yourself wanting that good feeling again. So you do it again and again and again. And it literally overcomes you. It enslaves you. And Jeremiah 17.1 reveals what's really happening. That sin is burning a mark into your heart. Nobody who decides to try heroin wants to become addicted to it and spend the rest of his life serving it. One addict said that after trying it for the first time, he never really escaped it. It cost him his fiance, his job, countless opportunities. But that was all somehow okay because of how it made him feel. This is what he said. If I never did it, I wouldn't live every day wishing I could feel like that again. Heroin is something where your ignorance to it is truly bliss. I never meant for it to last this long, to destroy my life, my body, my relationships and to taint the rest of my existence, because now I'm an addict, and I always will be. Addicts know it all too well, and they readily admit it. Heroin enslaves people. But the fact is, all sin does. Jesus Christ said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whosoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The Apostle Paul wrote, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death 
or of obedience unto righteousness. That's in Romans 6, verse 16. You know, it's not easy to have the right perspective on ourselves. It's one thing for a drug addict or someone trapped in a major addiction or sin to recognize that this is something wrong, but for a lot of people it might not be so clear. Can you see the sin in your own life? It actually takes God's help to do so. I want to look at a few passages of Scripture that help us to see where we go off track. We tend to think that deep down we're pretty good, and that belief is the basis for a lot of thinking in the world today. But God tells us over and over in the Bible that the opposite is true. The human heart is very sick, and the only thing that can heal it is God. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Can you recognize that about your own heart? Here's what Jesus Christ said in Mark 7. Verses 21 through 22, he said, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Christ lists 13 things there, 13 sins that come from the human heart. Evil thoughts is talking about what's going on in our own minds, our reasoning, our purpose, our motivation. We're told elsewhere to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Adulteries and fornications include sexual impurity, even impure thoughts. There's a whole lot of this in our world today. It's a very sexualized world, and God is concerned with what is in our hearts. He doesn't want adulteries and fornications even in our minds, in our hearts. So we have to be very careful about what we allow into our minds. Murders, that includes hatred or a lack of godly love. Thefts, there are a lot of ways that we can steal. We can steal time or effort from our employer. We can steal tithes from God that are rightfully his. Covetousness, is a greedy desire to have more, materialism, focusing on worldly things and possessions. Deceit refers to hiding things from people, deceiving or manipulating people to get your way, or even justifying yourself or deceiving yourself into thinking that something wrong is okay. Lasciviousness refers to excess, shamelessness, outrageousness. There's plenty of that in this world, going to extremes in behavior and appetites and personality or dress. God wants us to be known for our moderation. Blasphemy can include slander or gossip. It can refer to disrespecting the government. And, of course, it can be talking about our what we say about God and his ministers as well. And Christ also listed pride, haughtiness or arrogance, having a swollen estimate of yourself or looking down on others And that's a sin that can come out in some pretty subtle ways. Wanting praise from others or taking credit that isn't ours, feeling entitled to certain things, being easily offended, self-pity, self-righteousness, thinking you're okay and the problem is with everyone else. Human pride. It, It really takes the mind of God to fully see that pride within ourselves. So that's just a couple of verses 
that give us a good catalog of sins to examine ourselves for. You can find almost 20 more sins in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. It talks about the works of the flesh, including witchcraft and variance or contention, arguing, bickering, strife, trying to promote yourself. It talks about wrath or anger problems. You can also see about 10 sins in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. There are about six more to repent of in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. There are many passages where God gets very specific, pointing out what we should be on the lookout for in ourselves. The Bible has many passages that that talk about sins like complacency, lukewarmness, not applying the instruction that God gives you, a spirit of compromise, lack of self-discipline or self-control, emotional immaturity. There are many ways that we can be very opposed to God and that the evil in our own human nature can emerge. We have to clearly see it in order to break free of it. You can't be free of something that you can't even recognize. So the first step in becoming free is to be able to recognize these sins in our character. The real key to this is to hold yourself to God's standard. Compare yourself with God's goodness. Romans 2 and verse 4 says, The goodness of God leads us to repentance. We have to recognize our sins and even see that our goodness is nothing but filthy rags to God. It says that in Isaiah 64. There's no way we could ever earn salvation by our works, by who we are, by what comes out of our heart. All we've earned is death. And all of those sins enslave us. True freedom means not being a servant to sin. It means being free from destructive addictions, free from failed relationships that fell apart because of your own selfishness. True freedom is freedom from depression, freedom from out-of-control emotions, freedom from the problems that come from running your mouth, saying things that you shouldn't have said. It means freedom from guilt, freedom from anxiety, freedom from having to lie to cover your tracks. It means freedom from the curses and the penalties of sin. God hates slavery, and he wants to free you from slavery. He wants to give you true freedom. He wants you to be free to have strong, healthy, honest relationships. He wants you to be free to have a full, abundant life that you can live right out the open because you don't have anything to hide. He wants to see you live out a happy, abundant life, free from the slavery of sin. And true freedom is grounded in God's law. Read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They actually start out with that language. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of bondage, out of the land of slavery. That law is called the perfect law of liberty. The Apostle James called it that. The law of freedom. How well do you understand the law of God? That's 
That's the love of God and the nature of God spelled out in detail. But it's a way of life. It's a way of give and of love. And God gives it to us in detail because it's easy for us to reason our way to what's right and what's wrong. Society is doing a lot of that today, and they're reasoning their way into slavery in a lot of areas. God's law can break us free of that and give us real freedom. I'm Joel Hilliker, and you're listening to Trumpet Hour. When we come back, I want to give you a powerful example of what it can take to break free of the sin that can so easily enslave us and entrap us. We'll be back in a moment. Voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. One fateful day, several years ago, a young man named Aaron, an experienced hiker, made a bad decision. Even though he'd hiked alone many times before, this time it would cost him. Dressed in a t shirt and shorts and carrying a backpack, he planned to canyoneer a remote area in the Colorado mountains. He was maneuvering in a three foot wide slot, trying to get over the top of a large boulder wedged between the narrow canyon walls. He climbed up the boulder face, and it seemed very stable as he stood on top. As he began to climb down the opposite side, the perfectly balanced 800 pound rock shifted several feet and it pinned his right forearm to the canyon wall. In a panic, he tried with all his strength to pull his arm out, but couldn't. He was trapped. As we talked about in the first segment, sin entraps us. The difference is, often it happens over time, and we don't recognize it as readily as having a huge rock suddenly pin us to a canyon wall. But maybe you can identify with the feeling of being entrapped by something, wanting to get out, wanting to break free. Whether you realize it or not, spiritually, we've all experienced something very similar to the situation this young man found himself in. These are his words. I take an inventory of my pack. In the outside mesh pouch, I have my CD player, CDs, extra AA batteries, my mini digital video camcorder, a digital camera, a three LED headlamp, and a knockoff of a Leatherman multi-tool. I've also got a climbing rope and harness and the small wad of repelling equipment. I pull the rope bag out and drop it on the ledge in front of my shins, patting the rock shelf so I can lean into it. My legs are quickly tiring of standing. My next thought is, escape. I organize my options in order of preference. Excavate the rock around my hand with my multi-tool knife. Rig ropes and an anchor above myself to lift the boulder off my hand. Or, amputate my arm. I decide to work on the first option, chipping the rock away. 
Drawing out my multi-tool, I unfold the longer of the two blades. My first attempt to saw into the boulder barely scuffs the rock. I try again, pressing harder, but the back of the knife handle indents my forefinger much more readily than the cutting edge scores the rock. Changing my grip on the tool, I hold it like Norman Bates and stab at the rock. Nothing. Stress turns into pessimism. Without enough water to wait for rescue, without a pick to crack the boulder, without a rigging system to lift it, I have one course of action. I speak slowly, out loud. You're gonna have to cut your arm off. Hearing the words makes my instincts and emotions revolt. My vocal cords tense and my voice changes octaves, but I don't want to cut my arm off. I know that I could never saw through my arm bones with either of the blades of my multi-tool, so I decided to keep picking away at the boulder. The sound of my knife tapping is pathetically minute. Darkness seeps from my penumbral hole and spills into the desert. I establish a rhythm, pecking at the rock at two jabs per second, pausing to blow dust away once every five minutes. Time slips past. Before I know it, it's nearly midnight. Even if I wanted to sleep, I couldn't. The penetrating chill of the night air urges me to keep attacking the rock to generate warmth, and when my consciousness does fade, my knees buckle and my weight tugs on my wrist in an agonizing call to attention. He made it through the night. Then the next day, he undertook an elaborate effort to move the boulder using a pulley system with ropes and carabiners. It all failed. So for the first time, he began to seriously contemplate that horrifying third option, amputating his own arm. Laying everything out on the surfaces around me, I think through each item's possible use in a surgery. My two biggest concerns are a cutting tool that can do the job and a tourniquet that will keep me from bleeding out. Of the multi-tools blades, the inch and a half one is sharper than the three inch one. It will be important to use only the longer blade for hacking at the chalk stone and preserve the shorter one for a potential surgery. Even with the sharper blade, I instinctually understand that I won't be able to hack through my bones. I don't have anything that could approximate even a rudimentary saw. Until I figure out how to cut through the bones, amputation isn't a practical choice. But I wonder about my courage levels if cutting off my arm becomes a real plan of action. As a test, I hold the shorter blade of the multi-tool to my skin. The tip pokes between the tendons and veins a few inches up from my trapped wrist, indenting my flesh. The sight repulses me. I can't do it. I set down my knife and retch. I hate this boulder. I hate it. I hate this canyon. I hate the morgue-cold slab pressing against my right forearm. I hate the faint, musty smell of the greenish slime thinly glazing the bottom of the canyon wall behind my legs. I hate this. I punctuate each word with slaps of my left palm against the chalkstone as tears well in my eyes. No expectation has prepared me for this tormenting anxiety of a slow death. 
thinking about whether it will come tonight in the cold, tomorrow in the cramps of dehydration, or the next day in heart failure, this hour, the next, the hour after that. But then another voice speaks coolly. That boulder did what it was there to do. Boulders fall. That's their nature. You did this, Aaron. You chose to come here today. You chose to do this slot canyon by yourself. You chose not to tell anyone where you're going. It took Aaron a while before he was willing to accept the fact that if he was to survive, he would have to cut off this dying piece of his own flesh. He didn't have the heart to accept it. The spiritual parallel is strong. This is exactly the situation we face. This is essentially what true repentance requires. God explicitly uses this analogy of us having to cut away something dear to us if we're going to be right with God. It says in Jeremiah 4 and verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the eternal and take away the foreskins of your heart, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn, that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. The physical circumcision that God demanded of the ancient Israelites was just a type of this spiritual circumcision, the one that every true Christian must go through, and that is cutting away our hearts. We actually have to prove ourselves to God by cutting out part of our own heart, spiritually speaking. And this whole incident points to a powerful statement made by Jesus Christ himself about the battle each of us has against sin. Jesus said in Matthew 8, verses 8 and 9, If your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. It's not enough to just recognize the sin in our lives. We must then eliminate that sin. And that can be an extremely difficult thing to do. It can take radical action. Gerald Flurry wrote this in his booklet, How to Be an Overcomer. If you have a problem you can't get a grip on, Christ says do whatever you must to overcome it. Christ is demanding that we keep a strict law. Even looking upon a woman lustfully is considered adultery, and Christ says we ought to figuratively pluck out our eye if we can't control it. Unless we do, we're despising God. Sometimes we must go to extremes to overcome. What Christ is saying is that with sin, we must kill or be killed. If we let it linger, then we're going to die, trapped in the bottom of that canyon. Humanly, we want to hang on to the very thing that will kill us. We somehow think there must be a way to keep that sin and still survive spiritually. For five exhausting days, Aaron tried to free himself. He calculated that he was trapped for 90 hours 
96 hours of sleep deprivation, 25 hours without fresh water. He had lost a third of his body weight. He recorded his final goodbyes to friends and family and essentially waited out his death. With five days of gritty buildup pasted to my contact lenses, my eyes hurt at every blink, and wavering fringes of cloud frame my dingy vision. I can't hold my head upright. It lolls off to lean against the canyon wall. I am a zombie. Miserable, I watch another empty hour pass by. I have nothing whatsoever to do. I have no life. With my knife, I begin clearing particles from my trapped hand, using the dulled blade like a brush. Sweeping the grit off my thumb, I accidentally gouge myself and rip away a thin piece of decayed flesh. It peels back like the skin of boiled milk before I catch what is going on. I already knew my hand had to be decomposing without circulation, but I wasn't sure how fast the putrefaction had advanced. Now I suddenly understand the indigenous insect population's increased interest in my hand. This is from a news report about the incident. This is Aaron Ralston himself speaking. It ripped part of the skin off of my thumb, um, kind of like the way an old blister will, will rip mm-hmm. away. And so I, I, that made me curious, and I started prodding around, and I stuck the knife down in, and at my thumb at that spot and it slid in like I was just like I was sliding it into a pad of warm butter and it went in I couldn't feel it of course but it went in about a half inch and then this this hissing sound of, of gas the the decomposition gas is releasing from inside my arm my hand where they'd been building up as my arm was my hand was decomposing over those five days and that threw me into a panic. It it, it scared me. I was it it, it appalled me. I, it was just it was a gruesome concept that my hand was decaying while still attached to my body. And I started yanking my hand, my arm. And I was I was giving it everything that I had, and was twisting myself around, trying to slide my arm up and down like this. Aaron was disgusted by having this decay in his body while it was still attached. The fact is, our sins cause spiritual decay and death. And God can smell that acute spiritual stench. If we could get his perspective on it, we would become far more determined to get rid of it, to break free of it. So much of the time, the problem is that we're too complacent about allowing that sin to remain. We can't afford to allow ourselves to get comfortable with sin or be complacent. As we ask God that he would reveal our sins to us, we also need to pray that he would give us his attitude toward those sins. God hates sin. He sees how it destroys everyone and everything that it touches. He sees how sin enslaves people and robs them of happiness and robs them of life. Sin is what caused his beloved son to have to sacrifice his life. When God sees sin, he gets angry and indignant. He girds himself to war against it. That's the attitude we need. 
Colossians 3 and verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We have to kill these things off. We have to cut them out of our lives. It's not enough to acknowledge the sin. We can't survive unless we separate from it. It says in verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. It is these sins that are going to bring God's wrath down upon this world. Aaron was lashing around, trying to rid himself of his rotting arm. He thought, I don't want this. It's not a part of me. It's garbage. Throw it away. Be rid of it. And at that moment, he suddenly realized what he had to do to save his life. It came to me, this, this epiphany that I, could break, that I could break the bones because my arm was caught so tightly that I could torque myself. And so I, I slammed my body against the opposite wall. I grabbed the backside of the boulder and even got my feet up to where I was, I was standing halfway up the wall and grabbing the backside of the rock and pumping my body over it until finally that bottom bone snapped. And this pow sound went kind of echoing through the canyon. And I don't even know if I started feeling excited at that point, but I just knew the next thing that I had to do was that I had to break the other bone. And so I, I grabbed the bottom side of the rock um, and, and pushed and tried to sink myself down until I was pushing up to create the downward leverage on the top bone until it too made the same noise, pow, and, and snapped in the same spot, thankfully, um, right, right where my wrist was caught. They, they both broke right along here, just, just behind the bones of my wrist. But now you've got to cut off the arm. Yeah, and I said to myself, here we go, Aaron, you're in it now. And I took my knife. At first, I still had the, the larger blade out, and, and I held it up against my arm, and I started pushing into it, and I, I couldn't get the, the knife to sink in, and so I switched over, and I, I pulled out the smaller blade, and with the smaller blade, then, I actually started the, the amputation. The smaller one was still a little more sharp. I dove into this exercise, this, this surger, surgical procedure, and started cutting away. I put the tourniquet on, I was bleeding down the wall, and I severed the artery. And I he cut through more muscle and two more arteries, then tendon, the most difficult layer. His dull knife was unable to cut through. So I ended up taking the pliers side of the knife and using that to, to grab and twist and rip um, until the tendon gave way. It was slow, painful, excruciating work. He hacked away at his arm for nearly an hour, layer by layer, until he saw what he knew would cause the most intense pain yet. And then I was looking at the, the nerve, this little strand of spaghetti <laughs> running, through, running through my arm. And I had to take the knife and pry it up. And even just when I touched it, it felt like the fire of sticking my arm into a... Into a just a pot of liquid metal. It, 
it, it burned all the way up up my arm and, and I took it again and, and lifted it up. I knew that it was gonna hurt and I plucked it up and did it in a motion like that and that, that fire sensation redoubled and went all the way up to my shoulder. But I knew that that was the hard part. It was only a few more moments of work after that. And then, boom, and I wasn't even attached anymore. And I fell down like this, and I, I, uh, I, I was free. You were reborn. It was, it was the happiest moment of my life. And it's, it's funny to think about it being, there, there will never be a more powerful experience for me. It was absolutely the greatest feeling to, to, be, to be given the chance to get out of here. Uh, looking down Canyon, I knew I had, I had a trip left, but at least I, I, I was not going to die right here. And the power of that was astonishing. Aaron was able to finish the operation and break himself free of his rocky prison. After that, he bandaged his arm, crawled through the canyon out to a cliff, he rigged his ropes and rappelled 60 feet to the base of the cliff and began hiking out of the desert. A couple and their son found him at about the same time a rescue helicopter came into view. Because Aaron did what had to be done, he was saved. Do you have the courage and the guts to eliminate sin from your life? Godly repentance requires it. That is what it takes to be free, to experience true freedom and real life. I'm Joel Hilliker, and you're listening to Trumpet Hour. We'll take a short break and then talk about one more crucial step in the path toward true freedom. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Anciently, God delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt through a series of miracles. It's a dramatic picture of how God brings every Christian out of bondage to sin 
and starts us on our journey toward the promised land, our reward in the kingdom of God. But the Israelites demonstrated that God can deliver a man from slavery, but it takes even more work to deliver a man from the mindset of a slave. It's not just about getting out of Egypt. It's also about getting Egypt out of us. It's been said that though it took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt, it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. The Bible shows that there's yet one more crucial step on the path toward getting completely free from sin. We must overcome evil with good. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote this in his booklet, Just What Do You Mean, Conversion? Repentance is a total change of mind and heart and direction of life. It is a change to a new way of life. It's a turning from the self-centered way of vanity, selfishness, greed, hostility to authority, envy, jealousy, and unconcern for the good and welfare of others to the God-centered way of obedience, submission to authority, love toward God, more than the love of self, and of love and concern for other humans, equal to self-concern. We do have to give up certain things. We have to cut out wrong things. We have to kill off the sin in our lives. But it's not merely a process of eliminating things. What we really need to do is replace those things with something else. When you clear out the sin, you make room for something positive. Replace the evil with the good. The Apostle Paul made this very practical in his letter to the Ephesians. He wrote this in chapter 4, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, but you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you've heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Paul said, there is something we have to put off. There's something we have to get rid of. There's an old man. There's former conduct that is corrupt according to deceitful lusts that we must get rid of. But then we replace that with something else. He continues, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We have to put on a new man. The point is that not hating someone is not the same as loving them. Not taking anything from someone isn't the same as giving something to them. In order to really repent of sin and to be truly free of that sin, We have to replace it with righteousness. And Paul follows up on this lesson with several specific examples. In verse 25 of Ephesians 4, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. And verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, 
that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And finally, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So in all of these instances, it's a matter of putting away that evil and replacing it with something that is positive, something beneficial to those around you. It's such a simple concept, but it's so profound and so practical. Paul also wrote in Romans 12 and verse 21, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a powerful way to overcome evil course we have a huge part to play in this process but the reality is it cannot happen without a miracle from God we have to resist we have to submit we have to put down our carnal desires but also we have to allow God to lead us in that right way Romans 2 4 again it says the goodness of God leads you to repentance God gives us Repentance. First, he has to draw us and he has to open our eyes to see our deceitful heart. We respond by accepting that correction. Then he has to implant within us that hatred of sin, the hatred that he has for sin, and then increase our strength and our desire to be rid of that sin. Then we have to exert self-discipline and willpower to steer away from that sin. We actually have to make the effort to cut out that part of our lives, to put off the old man, to bury that body of sin, to crucify the flesh. Repentance without that effort doesn't really amount to anything. It's just worldly sorrow. But then as we obey, as we make that effort, as we believe in God, then God fills us with his life and his power. Jesus Christ comes to dwell in us. Only the perfect mind of Christ can conquer the evil heart of man. And we have to be responsive to the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives and every day keep committing ourselves to traveling in that new direction. We can see it's very much a cooperative effort between God and us. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. To go back to the example of Israel, They were only able to escape from Egypt by a series of miracles. They couldn't take credit for that. God leads us out of sin. Our responsibility is to follow him. And anytime we slip, anytime we sin again with God's help, we must go through that process again, recognizing that sin, eliminating that sin, and overcoming it with good. This is the path step by step by step to true freedom. That is what God wants to give you. He wants to free you from destructive addictions, free you from failed relationships, from depression, 
from out-of-control emotions, from the problems that come from saying things that you shouldn't. God wants to give you freedom from guilt, freedom from anxiety, freedom from deceit, even from self-deceit, freedom from all the curses and penalties of sin. God hates slavery, and He wants to free you from slavery. He wants to give you real freedom. He is the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and put you on the path to the promised land and an eternal life of true freedom. It's time for today's Last Word. How much do you know about Jesus Christ? The Bible portrays Christ in a lot of different ways as a Savior, a military captain, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. One of the most remarkable pictures of Christ is as a lamb. When he began his ministry on earth, the first time that the man called John saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Why would John the Baptist call this man the Lamb of God? That was a reference to an Old Testament rite that took place every spring called the Passover. Anciently, God commanded this of the Israelites for the very first time when they were slaves in Egypt. Each family was to select their best lamb, an unblemished lamb. On a certain evening, they were all to kill their family's lamb, spread its blood on their doorposts, roast the lamb with bitter herbs, and eat it. That blood protected them from being killed by a death angel that God sent to take the lives of all the firstborn of Egypt. These Israelites learned a profound lesson in the fact that the blood of the Lamb protects us from death. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God because he was God's best lamb. He was unblemished, and God sacrificed him as a Passover sacrifice. All those who come under the protection of that blood are spared from the death penalty that comes upon us for sin. The picture of Christ as the Lamb of God points to the fact that he was beaten and crucified to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could live. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. A lot of Christians don't think a whole lot about Jesus Christ except at Christmas when they think about his birth and Easter when they think about his resurrection. But did you realize that neither of those celebrations is commanded in the Bible? In fact, Jesus Christ himself commanded only one annual observance to memorialize him, and it wasn't to remember his birth or his resurrection, but his death. That is the Passover. Its observance is commanded in several biblical passages. Jesus himself, the night before he was crucified, showed us how this annual memorial is to be kept, by New Testament Christians, not with an animal sacrifice, 
but with unleavened bread and wine, new symbols of his broken body and shed blood. After Christ died, the church he founded continued to keep it every year. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ as our Passover. Today's Christian Passover is an annual memorial of the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ for all human beings. The Passover season requires us to focus on the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's the time of the year when we remember our personal Savior. Unless we have the blood of Jesus Christ on us, we will die in spiritual Egypt or in bondage to our sins. Jesus Christ's shed blood marks the beginning of our spiritual salvation. If we're going to follow Christ, we must come to understand his sacrifice fully. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God offered this precious lamb in sacrifice so we wouldn't have to suffer the penalty of eternal death. The place in the Bible where you read about the Lamb of God more than anywhere else is actually in the last book, the book of Revelation. The Bible ends with the picture of Christ as the Lamb. There are 24 references to him being the Lamb in Revelation. In Revelation 13, 8, Christ is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, from the beginning, Jesus Christ knew he would have to die to save mankind. And he did so willingly. It's a tremendous demonstration of the love of God. The Passover has tremendously beautiful and powerful meaning for today. It reminds us of the history of a people of promise, of miraculous protection from death and redemption from sin, of the perfect, sinless life of the Son of God, which he then offered willingly as payment for the sins of humanity, the greatest act of love ever. But Passover is only the first of seven biblically mandated festivals that collectively tell the story of God's entire master plan, past, present, and future. The deeper you study into these holy days, the more beauty and perfection you see. They show seamless cohesion between the Old and New Testaments and confirm that the God of the Bible does everything with purpose and design. And what purpose he has for the plan that began with the perfect offering of Jesus Christ, the life and death of the Messiah. It is far, far greater and much more inspiring than people generally realize. If you want to learn more about it, read Herbert W. Armstrong's wonderful booklet on the subject, Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Days Witch. You can find that at thetrumpet.com. It'll help you to know the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, better than you ever have before.
I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. If you liked today's program, I'd encourage you to become a subscriber to our Christian Living magazine, Royal Vision. We produce this magazine six times a year. It has a lot of articles with helpful instruction. It answers important questions on living a godly life. We'd be happy to send you a free subscription. You can email me personally at joelh, J-O-E-L-H, at thetrumpet.com and ask for Royal Vision. You can also send me any thoughts on today's program to that email address, joelh at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to Philip Nice and others for lending me their voices. Thanks to Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from William Lyle Bowles. The cause of freedom is the cause of God. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time. Keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.